Welcome to the Clever Chance podcast, where our experts discuss pressing issues and trends faced by business world today. This is the third in our Clever Chance on Credit podcast series, looking at topical issues and trends in the debt markets, and in particular, debt and credit investments by funds and asset managers. Today's session focuses on infrastructure investment. We'll be touching on the impact of COVID-19 on infrastructure investments in both the short and medium term, the winners and losers through the crisis, and looking beyond that at the trends the infrastructure sector is going to face in the future. I'm Claire Burgess, I'm a partner in the global financial markets team at Clifford Chance and I specialise in infrastructure and renewables. I cover all types of debt from infrastructure bonds and private placements to loans and I also lead the firm's initiative around green finance. And I'm James Pay. I'm also a partner in the finance practice but from the projects group specialising in greenfield project development and related sector transactions, particularly in the renewable space. I'm Alexandra Dimstad-Gill. I'm also a partner in the finance practice. Uh, I'm in the slightly um, inappropriately named, in a way, banking practice, because we don't just look at bank transactions, we look at private placements as well and a range of different products. And I specialise in infrastructure finance as well, predominantly brownfield finance, both in an M&A context and also in a refinancing and more structured context. So we're going to start today just thinking about what we've been seeing in the market around uh, the COVID. And I think all of us have seen a wave of amendments and waivers come out from our borrowers or um, to, our, to our other clients. Um, what's been interesting, I think, about this wave is actually a lot of them have been centred around what we'd call core infrastructure assets. So the transport assets in particular. Clearly, airports have had a hard time um, and are continuing to do so. Um, we've seen toll roads um, go out for waivers, um, but, there's been, um, but there's been a number of, of borrowers out in the market. And I, certainly my impression is the creditors have been largely sympathetic uh, to those borrowers. They have uh, looked particularly for comfort on the liquidity position of the borrowers, um, but largely people do have uh, cash in reserve and have been able to show that they have cash available to meet the, uh, the current needs. What I also find interesting, though, is throughout the later end of the wave of consents, we have seen creditors thinking a bit further ahead, perhaps even further ahead than the waiver period, because I think initially people thought we'll get through six months, you know, we'll get through nine months. Um, but now people are looking to see, well, what, it, what does the ramp-up look like and what actually is the correct credit structure uh, for this business in the longer term? And although, again, you, we're still seeing the waivers go through, um, that's sort of been something that's been coming up more in discussions with creditors. Alex, what, has that been similar to your experience? It has. Uh, I, I mean, I agree it's been quite striking that traditionally safe, trophy assets like airports, um, motorway services is another, have been so acutely affected while others in slightly more sort of racy core plus areas have shown a lot of resilience. So, so I agree that's been very striking. I also agree that um, creditors have, for the most part, been very supportive. Um, obviously, there's been a lot of regulatory guidance behind that. I think they've been very sensible of their regulatory obligations. Um, I've seen a slight contrast between different creditor constituencies, which I'm sure you've experienced mm -hmm. as well, with um, sort of US private placement creditors possibly coming at these waiver processes with a slightly different mindset and perceiving them in a slightly different way. 
Um, but gen generally supportive. I mean, from my perspective, most of the waivers were sought very early on. Um, sponsors and borrowers were very quick out of the gate. So I haven't seen too many in the more recent months of the crisis. But um, I think with a second wave upon us, that more long-term view is going to become, you know, very prominent. Um, and it'll be interesting to see how things play out in the next month or so uh, when people look to December test dates and, and maybe even June next year and think about whether they'll be in slightly tricky territory. Mm. And James, how about on your side? Yes, looking at it from the renewable sector perspective and the greenfield projects in particular, I think there was a great deal of concern at the beginning of the crisis regarding what would happen with uh, projects under development, supply chains generally, and a wave of potential force majeure claims. And I think what has been most interesting to me is how many of those situations have resolved themselves, showing the robustness on the whole of many of the supply chains. We've been forced to look more closely than ever, I think, at the precise drafting of force majeure clauses, which all too often are treated, I think, incorrectly as a sort of boilerplate clause stuck in the back of a document, but actually the precise wording of how they address issues such as the COVID crisis and whether or not they do legitimately form the basis for a force majeure claim has proved critical across a whole range of projects. I think the other thing that we've seen in the context of the COVID crisis, particularly again in the power sector, has been a fairly dramatic step change in the level of power demand. And that's had an impact on uncontracted projects uh, and also had an impact on power prices. But at the same time in May, we saw one of the sunniest months we've ever seen in the UK and record levels of solar production. So the projects on the whole have seen that they've been fairly robust from a financial perspective and that where force majeure issues have arisen, they tend to have been managed quite successfully. That's very interesting. I want to pick up on the point about the um, power prices maybe uh, in a little in a while. But firstly, the, the specific impacts of the consent processes do you think, Alex, that there'll be any impact on deal structure going forward as a result of the experiences that borrowers have had? I know that you know, we have maybe going back 10, 15 years, we did a lot of um, common terms deals um, with you know, cross-creditor voting, and more recently we've seen a lot of um, deals with individual creditor terms um, with, one, with shared security. They obviously play out a little bit differently when you get to a consent. That's absolutely right, um, and, and it's a great question um, because we have seen those dynamic, dynamics come to the fore in recent months. So um, it has been, I guess, the predominant trend over the last couple of years for um, own terms financings to be put in place um, on infrastructure assets. Uh, and for the uninitiated, that means that you, just as you said, Claire, you have different groups of creditors having their own individual instruments with their own set of covenants, their own financial covenants, but sharing in a common guarantees and security package. Um, and, you know, that could comprise, you know, US PPs on the one hand, European PPs on the other, and bank creditors. And the way that sort of financing works is that each constituency of creditors essentially has a veto right when it comes to any consent process, because you have to get the requisite majority under each individual debt instrument. And that is in contrast to the position under 
those slightly more historic common terms platforms that were put in place for regulated utilities back in the sort of 90s and the noughties and, and indeed you know, only a matter of years ago where creditors um, vote across the piece so um, you need to get to an overall majority so you can't you're less likely to end up in a situation where you have a sort of stubborn um, group of creditors holding out, not giving that consent and, and essentially holding the sponsor in the company to ransom um, and in the context of these COVID waiver processes, um, while the common terms voting processes are a bit sort of unwieldy, um, it has been slightly easier to get to that majority and to manage those credited dynamics um, in contrast to the own terms financings where you do need to get each individual group of creditors across the line. So... Um, I guess that's a long way of saying that going forward you might see renewed interest in common terms financings um, as a means of legislating for you know, the next pandemic or the next um, you know, unanticipated crisis that means you need, you need your creditors on board and you need to get that consent. So thinking now about kind of the winners and losers coming out of, of the crisis or through the crisis, and actually I've been quite surprised... Um, that we've not just we've been very busy not just on consents and amendments but actually um, for new investments and I think a lot of that activity has been focused around um, digital and clean energy um, so maybe just talking first about the clean energy um, revolution I think it's fair to say despite you know some concerns about um, power prices you know some concerns about deliverability supply chains that you were talking about James the deals have continued to flow. That's certainly true. Um, people have continued to show a great deal of interest in the sector generally, specifically of, of interest to myself, as has been offshore wind, uh, where we've seen uh, a significant number of very large transactions emerge in the market uh, during recent months, and uh, a lot of interest, not just from traditional participants in the sector, but also from a range of uh, financial investors in particular, who uh, would like to get involved for the first time. And I was talking with an investor earlier today about offshore wind deals in particular, and they were saying that they did see more nervousness creeping into the market around um, particularly those deals without you know, support, without feed-in tariff or CFD or similar. Um, I think, as fair to say, from our experience, those deals have been getting away quite nicely so far and, and still in a quite a borrower-friendly market. Do you sense any... Turn in that? Well, I think the Sea Green transaction, which closed at the beginning of or towards the beginning of the pandemic, was um, an exceptional transaction in a number of respects and perhaps could only have been undertaken by the sorts of entities who invested in it, including Total, who, who uh, took the, the co investor role in that particular transaction. One of the most striking features, I think, over the last uh, six to nine months has been the commitment to energy transition from the oil and gas majors. Um, and I think that's, that's a trend we will continue to see. And unlike many other potential investors in the offshore wind sector, particularly pure financial investors, they have the capacity to manage exposure to market prices and potentially even to sign up to power purchase agreements by themselves. So they find themselves in a rather different position than, than others, but also in an urgent need to make large-scale investments in order to meet the sort of uh, uh, direction of travel which their CEOs commit them, committed themselves to in relation to their Tier 1, Tier 2 and Tier 3 uh, uh, carbon output. 
And I think, you know, the ESG investments or green investments are one area where, as you say, there is that um, impetus to invest sort of coming from all sides. You know, I, I look at the ESG regulation um, that's, that's, uh, that's coming in around disclosure investments that institutional investors will need to make, uh, that banks need to make the trend in green finance so you have many banks for example issuing green bonds and they need to use the proceeds of those bonds in uh, in green investments and a lot of those find their way into renewable energy transactions so there's a real um, real push towards continuing to invest in renewables which ties in very much with the build back better agenda um, that's global at the moment people are looking for the, the, sort of the, the misery of the COVID crisis to create something uh, more beneficial and sustainable on a longer term. And I think very helpful to see, for example, the European Union come out with its taxonomy of what constitutes a, a green loan uh, in recent months. So there's, there's a bit more certainty as to what we're really talking about when it comes to green financing. Um, and I think there's also a, a clear trend towards uh, investor and institutional pressure towards uh, ensuring that financing is done on a sustainable basis. And the other, uh, sort of away from pure renewables, the other green and clean energy drive may be into newer investments, you know, new asset classes like hydrogen or carbon capture and storage, which perhaps have been a little bit slow to take off or have been, you know, been talked about for many years but we're really seeing momentum build now. I think that's right I mean for each of those technologies scale is going to be very important in terms of affordability because it's not clear that there are going to be large government subsidies necessarily available as we see the rollout of, of a hydrogen economy. At the same time hydrogen technology itself lends itself to investment again by the oil and gas majors who have specialised in that sort of infrastructure uh, and so I do think there's a chance for some rapid developments in that particular part of the market going forwards. I think on a, on a perhaps a, a smaller scale, a more achievable scale in the near term, we also have the, um, the growth of floating offshore wind technology, which I think is going to be very important in the next decade in the offshore wind world, and is going to open up a number of new markets. So markets like uh, potentially Italy, for example, uh, which has uh, deep water uh, offshore uh, will only really be capable of being opened up to offshore wind with floating technology. We're beginning to see it rolled out now from uh, just trial projects to something of a, of a more near to commercial scale. And I think it won't be very long before we see the first commercial floating offshore wind project. And how do you see um, investment of institutional money in those projects because you know with offshore wind we've seen there was a period when you know it was development banks leading the way then the commercial banks came in um, and, and dominated and then um, we saw uh, lots of uh, institutional investors come in particularly for the, the deals with the tariffs um, and, and we've even seen institutional investors come in with mezzanine debt so you know really finding different angles to get involved in those projects um, but we know that sometimes you know, that it takes a little bit of time for technology to embed and, and the risks are slightly higher. Do you see there being a delay for institutional debt or institutional equity in those sorts of projects that you mentioned? And the market has shown itself remarkably robust at adopting, adapting to new technologies. Um, we've seen the growth of offshore wind turbines from 3.5 gigawatts to 
now 15 gigawatts in a remarkably short period of time and there has been no real interruption in the market for, for lending uh, into those projects. We continue to see a great deal of liquidity in the infrastructure financing place in the renewable sector as well as a significant amount of uh, equity as well. Fantastic. On digital, another fairly good news story through the crisis and looking forward. Alex, what are you seeing there? Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, um, I think um, I would start by saying digital was, you know, in the ascendancy even before all of this because of, you know, a lot, a lot of digital infra assets. Do you have you know, good infrastructure-like characteristics, you know, long contracts and, um, you know, very predictable demands. So it was a bit of a hot topic before COVID kicked in. Um, but, you know, digital infra has remained an active portion of the market throughout the crisis. And, um, you know, we've seen deals in that sector get away. Um, and I think it's increasingly clear that governments around the world are going to make investment in things like fibre rollouts, 5G rollouts, you know, the backbone of their post-COVID stimulus package. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think, I think all of that is just going to escalate in the coming months and years. Um, so very much a hot topic um, and quite ironic given, you know, only maybe one or two years ago it was possibly in the slightly racy core plus category and actually it's looking like a very safe bet now. Um, and so, I mean, that's, that's the landscape of, you know, what's happening in digital. Um, in terms of, you know, themes that I think are worth drawing out around digital infra, um, the first one I'd say, um, I think a lot of activity is going to come from minority state sales. Um, you'll have seen... Um, a number of those, you know, in, in the Altice processes, and, and that's really driven by um, the need to finance these huge rollout programs of things like fibre, um, and, you know, existing owners are keen to keep the asset, um, you know, consolidated, but also free up some cash to fund those rollout programs, um, you know, that big capex spend. So, you know, for, for lenders that are thinking of, of, you know, lending into digital infra, I think um, minority stakes and hold co-financings are going to be quite a big theme um, for people to sort of get their heads around and get used to. Um, I think the other thing worth drawing out is that the financing model is slightly idiosyncratic in a lot of cases because it's not like a traditional brownfield asset that's sort of built and generating revenue. Very often you are at least in part funding a rollout or a build-out in the context of a data centre or a fibre network. Um, so there'll be a big capex facility um, and one of the big points of discussion will be around you know, how closely do you link each drawdown to the necessary capex spend. You know, how regimented do you want to be in terms of how you police that? Do you have a technical advisor signing off on each, um, each drawdown notice? And, and that's you know, not what we've been used to in the context of um, traditional brownfield infrastructure financings. And, and in that context where you don't have you know, revenue generation in the underlying asset yet, what do you do when it comes to distributions? Are they permitted or not? Or are they permitted when you meet certain, reach certain milestones? So they're just sort of some of the, the features of these sorts of financings that are, you know, a little idiosyncratic relative to what we're used to in the, in the world of brownfield um, infrastructure financings. Um, because of that sort of build-out element, um, that sort of roll-out element, I think a lot of 
a big bulk of the debt sort of in the short term is bank debt, um, sort of funding those big CapEx programs. But actually, there will be a really, really big opportunity on the horizon for institutional money um, to come in when, when the build-out has been completed, when the revenue is being generated, and um, you know, the sponsor is looking to put in place um, a longer-dated piece of financing um, to sort of provide that stable financing for the asset. Um, so there, I mean, they're just some of the, the features of financings in this particular sort of pocket of the infra markets. Um, and then just, you know, a couple of other things to be aware of or that investors might want to consider um, are things like ESG. I'm sure, you know, as, as our resident ESG expert, you've seen this um, talked about in the context of digital. So, you know, data centers, how energy efficient are they? You know, that's a, that's a big thing to be aware of. Um, Very good when you put them in a cave. Is that right? By a fjord. Very energy Indeed. Efficient. That's good niche knowledge, but it makes <laughs> sense. It makes absolute sense. Um, and also obsolescence risk. I mean, we talk about 5G rollouts, um, and, and that's great, but it's only a matter of years, you know, a year or two ago that we were rolling out 4G. So, again, that's just something, you know, it's a very rapidly evolving sector. So there are things to be aware of. It, it, you know, aware of it is, um, you know, developing fast, um, but as we said at the beginning, looking like quite a safe bet in a post-COVID world. And maybe interesting that both of the digital and clean energy investments have, you know, with the, with the exception of some of the government support and CFD packages, um, but those which are effectively um, uh, bill-payer funded, um, they have been largely uh, funded by the private sector, particularly on digital. Um, as a, you know, a sort of sensible business case mm -hmm. in its own right, rather than needing government funding. And I wonder what your views are in terms of um, government funding of infrastructure, because we've seen, you know, if I bring it, draw it back to the UK, you know, we've seen the government um, open its wallet most definitely with, mm. uh, well, the NAO said 210 billion um, of spending um, in relation to COVID over the recent months. They've announced a five billion infrastructure um, package over the next year for investment. But we know that, you know, they will be tight on their balance sheets, but they also see infrastructure as a way to um, drive growth, Absolutely. drive productivity. And that's and that's a, a theme that's that's continued you know, globally. Do and we in the case of digital, they're catering for a new way of life and working, you know. Yes, it, so, and, and maybe that's the right investment versus yeah. potentially transport investments, Indeed. which have historically been the, the, you know, the routes to productivity growth. Do we think that we'll see um, governments continue to drive uh, infrastructure investments, or I should say really start driving in, mm. in infrastructure investment through their own budgets, or do we think that, again, there'll be more opportunities for the private sector to be behind that growth? I think governments are always uh, wary of, of, if you like, squeezing out private investment through uh, too much direct investment themselves. But at the same time, the need to kickstart a post-COVID economy, the political imperative of regional re re rebalancing, which the, uh, the Johnson government mm -hmm. has promised us, would tend to mean that, that they will have uh, be tempted by large-scale infrastructure projects in order to get people back in jobs and, and to stimulate growth. I think they've announced 10 billion for fibre rollouts already, so I mean, there's a signal of intent certainly in that 
pockets of the infra world. I, yeah, I'd agree. I think the, there'll be strong, strong imperatives for them to do that. And perhaps we've got two drivers now because we've got the usual growth, um, uh, growth driver, but also employment. So I think opportunities for development which are labour intensive, which require you know uh, workers. Um, will be favoured, um, particularly over the shorter term, whilst, uh, whilst we might unfortunately expect unemployment rates to rise, particularly as we phase out um, the current furlough scheme. The real issue becomes, are there any shovel-ready projects? Because otherwise these things have quite a long lead time. And that's going to be the real challenge for the government, is what can they invest in which will stimulate growth and activity quickly? Well, what, they, what can they do to reduce the lead-in times as well from a sort of planning perspective? Just to take an example. We need shovel-ready and oven-ready. Both those things are required. <laughs> an oven-ready Brexit. So. <laughs> let's not, not. Let's, we're not going to talk about Brexit. We will not talk about Brexit. So um, I think that brings us to the end of the podcast. Hopefully you've heard that there are many opportunities, particularly on, uh, for institutional investors, on digital refinancings, um, new technology and clean energy, and the uh, ever-flowing uh, river of renewables transactions, which we're happy to say uh, continue, to, continue to keep us very busy here. We look forward to uh, speaking with you all in the future. Do get in touch with any of us if you would like to discuss any of the issues mentioned in this podcast. Otherwise, many thanks uh, to James and Alex, and thank you all for listening. Thank you. Thank you. A recording of this podcast and others in the series can be found on the Clifford Chance website. You've been listening to the Clifford Chance podcast. Please subscribe to our podcast by visiting cliffordchance.com and follow us on LinkedIn.